you ever des- desired to give God a piece of your mind before? Have you looked around at your circumstances or your world and thought, really all I want to do is shake my fist at the heavens and tell God he's not getting it right? Has that ever been you before? What's interesting is uh, I, I think some of us, uh, I was in some ways, raised in an environment where the idea of questioning God was, uh, was treated as Christian malpractice. Do not question God. God knows what God is doing. Who are you to question God? And I, I sort of I get that. I mean, I understand that, that line of thinking for sure. But the more I've read the Bible as an adult, I, I find that uh, God seems open to questioning. That this sort of back and forth between God and God's people is baked into the experience of being a covenantal people of God. Uh, for example, you could just look at the Old Testament. And there's some major stories where people confronted God over what God was doing and God seemed to change his mind. Uh, Abraham prayed God down from destroying Sodom and Gomorrah to just 10 people. If he could find 10 righteous people, save the whole city. Moses spared the whining Israelites in the desert time after time after time. God wanted to undo that whole rainbow promise with Noah. And frankly, if I were the God of those people in the desert, I may have wanted to undo that promise as well. But Moses contended for them over and over and over, and God's anger relented. There was the time as well when the, uh, the judges, the cycle of the judges was failing, and the people began demanding a king before God. And God wanted to be the king of the people. Don't, don't choose a king like all the other nations. Choose me. I will be your king. And the people demanded a king because they wanted to be just like everyone else. And God relented, them, relented and gave them exactly what they wanted. Now, what's interesting is there's kind of a spotty history as to humans getting what they wanted before God. You can make an argument that things went well or not well, depending on the circumstance. But being a covenantal people with God seems to mean, at least in part and at times, that you are welcome to contend with God. That you can go before God and say, I don't think you're seeing it right. You're not seeing me right. I would like this. And frankly, I think this gives us a pathway to be a praying people as well. But today we're going to look at the book of Malachi, which is a whole series of back and forths between people and God. God says something, the people argue back, and God responds once more. They are six disputes in the book of Malachi between the people of God and God. It is this sort of contentious back and forth that sometimes some of us have longed for. And if there's anything we learn in Malachi... And there should be a few things, but one thing that we definitely should learn in Malachi is this, is that if we're going to wag our finger in the face of God and tell him that he is not being God enough for us, that God might just respond. And when God has the final word, it'll probably make us shake in our boots just a little bit. And so we're going to get to that in just one second, but I want to set up the scene for Malachi. I I imagine you know, maybe you don't, but Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament as we have it compiled today. The very, very last book. It's the end of what we call the Minor Prophets, most likely the last of the Minor Prophets written, although um, a lot of that is guesswork by placing 
histories inside of the different texts that we have and trying to place it in a timeline. And the situation of Malachi is like this. You may recall, a few weeks ago I talked about this, but Nehemiah and Ezra led a group of people from uh, Persia back to Israel, to Jerusalem. They rebuilt a wall of the temple there. They read the law and the people cried and were so happy to have returned home. Now, one of the things I didn't talk about in great detail, but it's important noting, is that Nehemiah wasn't the king. Nehemiah was named governor which means that the king of Persia was still the king. The king was foreign, which means that Jerusalem and Israel and the people of God were in occupied land after the exile. And they would be in occupied land for millennia after the exile. And so one of the major problems and frustrations that are arising in the book of Malachi is that the people of God want to get back to normal. They want to have their everyday life as Israel, and it's incredibly bad news to them that there's a foreign king who gets to impose their rule and reign on them. They want to run the show, and they want to dictate how they're going to live. Now, this may sound a little bit familiar to you. This may sound a little bit like the situation into which Jesus is born into looking for a way out of foreign rule and reign over them and looking for a Messiah to come and to do just that. That situation from the book of Malachi until Jesus would extend between four and 500 years of extended waiting for a foreign oppressive government to be expelled and kicked out so Israel can get back to the business of being the people of God. And so this is the situation we find ourselves in. The people in Israel are upset because they are subject to Persia. They had built optimism around rebuilding Jerusalem in the temple. They were supposed to return to worshiping God. They felt like they had held up their end of the bargain and that God was not holding up his end of the bargain by kicking Persia out. And so thus becomes the disputes of the book of Malachi. You get the situation. Here we go. The first dispute of Malachi goes like this. God comes to the people through the prophet and says, I love you. Well, that's a beautiful statement, isn't it? How can you argue with God saying, I love you? This should be a wonderful moment. The people of Israel should say, thank you. We're so glad that the creator of the stars and the heavens and the rocks and the trees loves us. But the dispute goes like this, and this is probably, I'm going to guess, a dispute that you have had with God before. The people of Israel say back to God, well, how, how do you love us? Prove it. Look at our situation. Everything's messed up. Everything's bad. Where, where's my one shred of evidence that you, God of love, love me? Have words like that ever come out of your mouth before? Maybe not out of your mouth, but in your mind. The disputes can be timeless. And God responds by saying, you think you have it so rough, but I chose you. I had the choice between Jacob and Esau and his descendants, and I chose you. And you may think your circumstance looks bad, but look at the people of Esau. 
Their mountains have been destroyed and their inheritance was left to desert jackals. You think you got it bad? Look at the people I didn't choose. This is sometimes a problem with arguing with God, right? God has a way of making a good point. You see, if Israel is going to compare themselves to Persia, it may seem rough, but if they're going to compare themselves to the people that they were chosen over, they actually have a pretty sweet deal going for them. God comes and speaks to them a second time. He says, you despise my temple. And the people are like, what? We, we left exile. Our forefathers came here. We re- rebuilt something that fell into rubble. Those old Babylonians tore it apart and we built it back up. How could you possibly claim that we despise your temple? That's crazy talk, God. And God wasn't talking about the building. He says, look at what happens in the temple. You bring diseased, skinny, fatless animals that you would never, ever put on the barbecue. You bring that as your worship offering. They have three eyes, they're scraggly, they have mange. Some of them are missing legs, they're deformed goofy looking, and you bring them as an offering to me. Then, if that's not bad enough, my priests see your goofy looking animals and they accept it as if it's a reasonable offering. Does that sound like worship to a God to you? There's no sacrifice. There's no covenant. Israel is trying to skate by on a bare minimum. And this causes God to accuse them of despising his temple. A third accusation comes. You have turned away from me and you prove it in the way that you marry. And the people of Israel are like, what now? What are you talking about? And God talks about the the practice of Israelite men going and finding foreign women, which is looked down upon in this time mostly because what ends up happening is Israelite men find these exotic foreign women, they bring them back to Israel, and the women bring with them their idolatrous gods, and the Israelite men just let idolatry happen in their house. They put up gods and idols of foreign religions in their house, and it makes its way into the temple and into the way they worship, and they begin to have this sort of synchronized religion in their houses. And what's worse than this is that they don't even see their marriage as a way of honoring God. It actually gets worse because the men get tired of these foreign women. They're just bored with marriage and they kick these women out of their house into nothing. And God is saying, is this way of living honoring to me whatsoever? Does this seem to be the way that you understand covenant? Because I am in a covenant with you and you can't even get your covenants right with the people who are right in front of you. Third dispute, once again, the people are scandalized. Fourth dispute, God is now angry and moves to more of the offense in the back sex. You remember he starts his first time interacting with the people saying, I love you. 
Well, the fourth one gets more serious and God is getting more intense. God says, you accuse God of neglect. Maybe this is something that you've thought before as well. And I'm not saying this to accuse you. I'm saying this to raise the idea that these ancient struggles that the people have are struggles that carry on to today. When we read the text, this is not a collection of stories from yesteryear, but it continues to be the story of us today. A people who are in covenantal relationship with a God they can't see, touch, feel, or talk to face to face. These struggles are timeless. And so if we have these struggles, there's a way we can look into the story and say, I know this struggle. What does God do with it? God says, you accuse me of neglect. But again, a God who is in covenant with his people responds by saying, you do nothing to end injustice and corruption. You only expect me to confront evil. God is a God of partnership. The fifth dispute. He says, turn back to me. Turn back to me. He's laid out in four disputes how we've turned away, and God says, turn back to me. And the Israelites now are getting weary of this conversation by the fifth dispute. And they say, you can almost hear in the weariness of their response, how? How are we supposed to turn back to you? What does repentance look like? We're brutalized by a foreign government. You're carving our way of life upside down, left and right. We're guilty, 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 guilty. What in the world can we possibly do to make this right and turn back to you? And God says, tithe. Tithe? Tithe? Uh, you've probably heard this language in a church before. We talk about a Christian discipline of tithing. Tithing just translates as one-tenth. It is the ancient Israel idea that in, in the history of Cain and Abel, the best sort of giving is giving the first fruits of our life, the first 10% to God, and the people have fallen out of practice of this. It's already mentioned that the offerings that they are giving to the temple are diseased, broken, ugly, and God is saying, first fruits, one-tenth, give it back to the temple. And the people respond by saying, why would we do that? It doesn't make financial sense. We, we feel kind of oppressed and undone. Life is difficult. And God says, look, look at the temple. Just take a walk through it. Because you're not giving generously, it's falling in disrepair. The priests don't have a healthy salary. They can't live and eat well. They don't know where their next meal is coming from. The work you're supposed to do to uphold the religious life of this nation, you're not holding up your end of the bargain. And the people are like, probably frustrated at this point. I guess they're frustrated because I preached on tithing before and I know how that's usually received. Right? And, and the people kind of want to know, like, what's in it for me? Like, why is it my job to pay for the priests in the temple, right? Like, I get this. This is sort of the wrestling you do with tithing. But God doesn't just, like, demand action and say, you owe this like a bill to me. God says, test me on your giving. Test me. Because God doesn't just want us to be a giver who gives a tithe to the church or the temple or the work of God in the world to show that we're in it or that we have skin in the game. 
God wants to see that we are indeed a covenantal people, that we're in partnership with God for the sake of the world. And this is one of the ways that we act out of our faith to show God that we are with him in his project of bringing salvation to the world. And God says, once you do this, once you become a person who brings a tithe to the church to care for my building and my priests, I will open up the treasury of heaven and bless you beyond what you can possibly imagine now. God's word in Malachi is, you give 10% in faith and I will pay you back in ways you can't even imagine or work for. I believe that's a truth that carries on to today as well. I find that when I trust God in giving, that God responds by blessing. And the sixth dispute, the final dispute is this, that the Israelites say to God that it's all pointless. Look around. The wicked always win. The righteous suffer and struggle. The arrogant are happy. And when they put the Lord to the test, they escape. I don't know about you, but I found myself in all six of these disputes. Every six, every one of the six frustrations that the people have at God, I found to be contemporary, modern frustrations as well. These are six things that without having read Malachi, I could have testified to you that I have accused God of at some point or another in my life. The issues that the people of God have in Malachi, four to 500 years before Jesus is born, are issues that we struggle with today as well. Maybe not individually, but certainly collectively. And God's response to this final accusation that the people who do evil skate and win over and over and over is this. You just wait and see what's going to happen to them. Well, I'll be honest with you. I'm not sure that's comforting at all. It's sort of terrifying, right? Because what if I'm the arrogant one? What if I'm the wicked one? It invites me in some ways to self-reflect, to look on the inside and say, I'm pointing and yelling about the arrogant and the prideful and the wicked in this world, but am I doing any work at all to look internally to ask if I'm behaving in the way I'm accusing others of? And so God says, the day of the Lord is coming. And on the day of the Lord, the wicked and the prideful who seem to be skating and getting away with whatever they want to in the world as we set it up have, will struggle on the day of the Lord. And then God, the whole book finishes with chapter four, which these are the last words of the Old Testament. And I chose this book today very much on purpose because next week we begin Advent, which is the beginning to consider the stories of the coming of Christ, both as baby and in second return. And this, these last words end with a period, but they almost ought to end with a multiple paragraph gap because the last word of this text is the last word for four centuries. And if you could just indulge me for one second, I imagine that's a lot of difficult waiting, 400 years. 
Start counting how many generations behind you you need to have in order to get to the year 2420. The sort of hopes and longings that the people have as they confront God here, they're given this problem that the day of the Lord is coming, and then they're treated to silence. When God is silent, it's pretty easy for the accusations found in Malachi to begin to bubble up once more. What do you mean you love me? Why is it that sin is winning all around me and I'm trying to be righteous? Why in the world should I give of the little bit that I have to give to a church where God is silent? I imagine all these anxieties ramped up deeply, and there's a lot of extra-biblical texts that talk about these 400 years, and the people of God look under every single rock to find a Messiah who's going to bring them the day of the Lord that they long for. And every time someone rises up to be the next would-be Messiah who will institute the day of the Lord, they find out that it's not him, and they go back to the drawing board. So listen to these words that give them hope, but a hope that's a long ways off. Would you read with me Malachi chapter 4? Stand with me. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All of the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all of Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. God says he's coming and he's going to send one who has healing in his wings. Sounds like a Christmas hymn, doesn't it? Who has healing in his wings. He's going to send Elijah first to prophesy that he's coming. And this coming is going to be like a fire that turns evil into dust. But again, this fire, we we read this with our modern eyes in here, destruction. There's some destruction in the text, right? But, but the idea here is that the fire is going to consume that which is evil. And those who are righteous will not be consumed by it. Much like the aspen we talked about last week are gold when it's purified, right? The fire will come not to destroy us, but to destroy what is hindering us as the people of God. It's coming In Elijah, the the prophet who never died, who was taken up into heaven, will return and to make the way for a God who says, I'm coming down there. If it doesn't get better, if you can't follow the law of Moses, 
I'm coming down. 400 years before this became true. Grandsons and granddaughters and great-grandsons and great-granddaughters and on and on and on waited for the day of the Lord. And they anticipated it was going to look like God giving them exactly what they wanted, a defeat of foreign governments. Once Persia goes away, Greece comes in. Once Greece goes away, Rome comes in. And nation after nation comes and dominates them. And they look for a mighty warrior who will take out the nations of this world. But God is longing to do something different than acquire power in this fallen world. God is longing to defeat sin and death, pain and hurt, fear and anxiety that cripples us. And God wants to make things right by coming and dwelling with us and being our God who is personal and near. And the thing about Jesus, when he does come 400 years later, is that Jesus isn't simply a cuddly teddy bear of a Messiah. The same sort of things that are dealt with in Malachi, Jesus confronts as well. He goes to the temple and he says, this isn't working. He asks people to be sacrificial in their giving. He confronts the people who are wicked and who are doing wrong. And the people who are humble and broken and hurting, he brings comfort and healing to. Jesus carries on this prophetic tradition in Malachi, and yet people still struggle to see that he's the one who is promised. But if there's anything that I want to walk away with from the end of Malachi, it's this, is that there is this prophetic idea that God is coming to make all things right, to trample evil and make it into dust and to raise up the righteous remnant But as the people hear this prophetic word, they have to enter into a season of patient waiting. Patient waiting, which is the theme of Advent. We are a people who wait patiently for the return of Christ to deal righteously and to judge correctly the ways of the world. God will make all things right, but we have to be patient. We have to wait on God's time because God is at work and God will confront the things that tear us down. But we must learn to be a people who are patient and a people who trust. Would you join me as we sing this final song? Would you stand with me?